thank you for joining me today for Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. In this series, we hear from people in the field of eating disorders who share with us their personal and professional journeys, experiences, reflections, and ideas in ways that never quite get represented uh, as such in standard academic conferences and publications. I'm Kathy Pike, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Eric Von Firth. For over a decade, Dr. Von Firth has been Professor of Eating Disorders in the Department of Psychiatry at Leiden University Medical Center. He has been the Director of River Downen Eating Disorders Ursula, a Center for Excellence for Eating Disorders in Leiden for more than two decades. He's past chair of the Dutch Academy of Eating Disorders, past president of the Academy for Eating Disorders, and has an enormous wealth of experience in the field. We're delighted to have you join us today, Eric. Thank you very much, Kathy. It's a pleasure to be here and to talk to you today. Thank you. So let's start at the beginning with just growing up years. What did you imagine your professional career would be? Oh, that's that's a tough question. I come from a family of medical doctors. Um, so um, my, my, my father was an internist. My brother is a psychologist and a neurosurgeon. My sister is a professor in pediatrics. So uh, my daughter is, is fourth generation uh, MD doing her, her PhD in, in um, transplantation surgery. So it's, it, it runs in the family. And mm-hmm. so when I was, I think, 15 or 16, I really wanted to study, uh, go to med school and become a surgeon. That was actually what I, my brother, of course, fulfilled that task for me. <laughs> so I started, I started off doing medical school and I found it horrible, horrible, horrible. And um, both content wise and, and from a, a personal perspective, I found it, I, I kept being confronted with my father's history, he was at the time he was a, a relatively famous Dutch physician. He was, I think, in 1976 when I when I did my um, my high school uh, finals. Uh, he was the the most cited professor in medicine in the in the country. So that's quite I, a I, legacy. It, it is, and I, I I was actually when I when I when I went to I think it was histology. The the professor said to me, "Are you the son of?" And that has constantly um, followed me. And he said, "Oh, but I'm sure you know all this stuff. Shall I just give you an A so you can go home?" Uh, which <laughs> was ridiculous, right? <laughs> and I had I had several of of these kinds of interactions, and I as an 18 year old, I found it very very difficult to deal with. I'm sure. So, so obviously I flunked and I got into psychology, which I liked a lot more. And found uh, your own path. I, I, I did. Um, but uh, truth be told, I am now a professor at the same university hospital where my father has been a professor for 40 years. Uh-huh. Uh, so all things come together in a way. Um, uh-huh. And But you got there on your own terms. So what were those? How did you get into psychology? And when you got into psychology, did you know where you would wind up in terms of specialty? After after I wanted to be a surgeon, I sort of switched to being a psychiatrist. And obviously, I, I didn't succeed. But then psychology was a really good second. 
1984, I did an internship uh, at a, a, a family therapy unit, which was part of the child and adolescent psychiatry at Utrecht University. And um, the, the guy who, who ran that place was a very tall Belgian family therapist who had just spent a couple of years at Salvador Mnuchin's in Philadelphia. Huh. Uh-huh. And Mnuchin at the time was interested in eating disorders. So right. when, when my boss came back to Holland, he said, we're going to do eating disorders. And uh, so as, as an intern, um, I had to write up all the, all the reports of the interviews of the psychiatrist and the family therapist. And, and we saw one patient a week. Um, and so my, my first training is family therapy. So that's how, how my interest in eating disorders started off. Right. And what were the dominant ideas that came from Mnuchin around eating disorders? I think some of which, uh, hold up and some clearly don't. For me, it, it, it meant that we, um, my view of of working with individuals with eating disorders and teenagers was family based from the beginning. So mm-hmm. it was it was everything we did was family based, um, which I think was was very interesting. And um, after my internship, I I wrote my own uh, research grant and uh, and in, in in the end got it funded. It took some time. Um, on expressed emotion and eating disorders. And of course, express, expressed emotion looks at parental attitudes towards an individual with an illness and looks at uh, things like criticism, uh, hostility, mm-hmm. warmth, emotional over-involvement, um, which also um, sort of um, reflects or, or should reflect family dynamics and is, is, is something you can actually intervene on, which interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So Eric, on your service, how would you describe the, the range of services that you offer and the, the population that you're serving? The range is, is large. So we have uh, e-mental health on the one hand, anonymous e-mental health. We have an e-community called proud to be me. We have a small intervention called feedback, which we've tested into large RCTs. And we have a large outpatient unit with um, lots of groups. In the Netherlands, we do a lot of groups in group, group psychotherapy, mm-hmm. uh, featuring CBTE, um, but also psychomotor therapy or, or other sort of connected therapies. Then we have a, um, a day treatment unit where we can have up to 20 patients for five days a week. And we have an inpatient unit with 21 beds for the most severely ill. Mm-hmm. Uh, so essentially, we, we, we offer the full range of services. We do children and adolescents. We do adults. We do elderly, all ages, all genders, mm-hmm. all eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, at any given moment, we have about 1,100 patients in care. And we see about 650 patients, new patients every year. Um, and the, uh, the Ursula, yeah, we, we employ about 130 people. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's for Dutch standards, it's a big service. Um, yeah. I think by most standards, it's a big service. 
There are some, there are some that are a lot, a, a, a lot bigger in Germany, for example, and some commercial ones in the U.S. But we are, of course, non-commercial, where mm -hmm. all of our treatments are uh, reimbursed by health insurance, mm -hmm. um, with very few limits to the duration of treatment, for example, mm -hmm. uh, which offers us a, a relatively great freedom in in how we treat these patients and for how long we treat them. Mm -hmm. So in the Netherlands, uh, there's an insurance system. Is it a universal insurance system? Is it? Can you describe a little bit more about how how it works seeking care in the Netherlands? Uh, we have a universal healthcare system, which means that every individual uh, age, aged eighteen and over needs to be needs to have healthcare health insurance. Um, by and large, it's private health insurance, but um, the the rates are very reasonable. So I, I think that I pay per year what an average American pays per month. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, children are uh, under the age of 18 are automatically covered by their parental health insurance. Mm -hmm. And um, all specialist um, medical treatments, and that is what we offer, are covered by health insurance. Uh huh. So there's and a very broad range of sort of uh, treatments that are being covered by health insurance. Mm -hmm. So you're working in a health system where everyone's required to have insurance coverage if they're if they don't have even if it's a low cost if they don't have uh, their own funds are they is there a national system that provides a safety net for those who can't afford their own insurance even even if you're on welfare you you'll have health insurance mm -hmm. there's a there's a a yearly deductible of, of 385 euros. Uh -huh. um, that's about it. That's what you pay out of pocket. Uh-huh. So everyone's covered. Everyone's and covered. In the, the US and, and in other parts of the world, I know as well, access to care is still is a big issue. Yeah. So even if you have coverage, it can be difficult to get care in some parts of the world. Is that true in the Netherlands also? Or do you have the do you have data or do you have a clinical sense that when people need care, there's capacity to deliver the care that's needed? The, the answer is both yes and no. So the, the 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 general practitioner is the gatekeeper to specialized care. So everyone has a, a GP and um, the, the GP is the is the first line of defense, and and he or she decides whether or not you need specialist care. And there's a um, G, GPs are very careful, I think, not to refer too many people to specialist care. So you would never go and see a specialist without going through the GP. And so that that's one important filter, I guess, in in the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. um, and because like everywhere else, we have uh, certainly in, in the industrialized Western world, we have we see an increase in healthcare costs on a, on a macro level. And we see a decrease in the number of pro uh, healthcare professionals. Mm -hmm. um, so 
there is the demand for healthcare and certainly for mental health care um, is always larger than what can be provided and what on a macro level the, the government would, um, would, would budget. Mm-hmm. We've talked a bit about healthcare systems. We've talked about a bit about ways in which societies are potentially more toxic related to the specific issues that we're concerned about with mental health, with eating disorders. Um, You've got an eating disorder service that serves 1,100 people at any given moment in time. You're seeing a lot in terms of what this story is and how serious eating disorders can be. I'm wondering if we can move into this discussion around whether you're seeing more, and I, I also, maybe first question is, what language do you think is the right language when we talk about more serious, more severe, more severe and enduring, more chronic um, eating disorders? Clinically, how do you reference this group that you see as being more ill, right? There are lots of different terms that people use. What do you That's- feel is most accurate and who are you most concerned about in terms of being in most vulnerable in that regard? Yeah, it's a, that's an interesting topic. It's, um, of course, obviously, I'm not a native English speaker, um, uh, but I do love language, and it's. <laughs> um, uh-huh. I have I have great difficulty with the, with the terms that that we generally use. Things like yeah. severe and enduring eating disorder instead of chronic, uh, in in Dutch. We would the, the the patient organization coined it uh, long-standing eating disorders and used the an abbreviation to to address these individuals. Terms like terminal anorexia, um, I, I have great difficulty with. It's, um, it, it, I think, in the depression field, they talk about chronic depression after two years. Um, we are hesitant to talk about a chronic anorexia nervosa after ten years. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, we we have as a field, I think in, in general, have great difficulty in, in calling something uh, a chronic illness. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking about chronic individuals, I'm talking about an illness. Mm-hmm. And, and um, so in, in your system, your health system, the term chronic is a, feels appropriate and patient groups that resonates for patient groups as a chronic oh. illness. No, no. It, it doesn't. I, I I think I'm I'm the outlier. So I the, see. Okay. It, it's it's like like abbreviations like seed in, in Dutch. It would be less, which is long-standing eating disorder. Um, okay. And and so I, I think in in our field we find it difficult to name things for what they are. Um, uh huh. I see. And, so you're saying these are long-standing conditions that we would call chronic conditions. Let's call them chronic conditions. Yes. Yeah. Got it. Which says What's nothing the advantage? about the individual, but it says something about the illness, about our lack of, of power of interventions in a way. Mm-hmm. Right. So calling it a chronic condition or identifying that there are individuals who have eating disorder, symptoms, syndrome, burden over a long period of time um, that 
some patient groups would prefer to call long, um, severe and enduring or longstanding. Um, chronic could be another term that we use. The reality is that these folks are really burdened and the eating disorder is consuming their lives. And you have written about, you've talked about these issues of um, what do we do as healthcare providers? How do we understand our responsibilities as healthcare providers for these individuals who are so burdened, who are so impaired um, by the eating disorder? Um, what do we do about it? How do we define who they are? How do we describe who they are? And how do what do we do about it? And then what do we do if one of these patients no longer wants to live. And so I want to move into your big yeah. idea around this topic because it's it's it is a big idea. It's a big I've, topic, more yeah. more than an idea. But just that, before I get into that, um, my colleague Rita Slough did some research on um, how patients define their recovery. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that she um, sort of pointed out is that there's uh, quite a large group of individuals who still have some eating disorder uh, symptoms, but who consider themselves recovered. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was very meaningful, um, not so much from a research perspective when it comes to defining recovery, but who am I to define recovery as a clinician? Right. Why don't we listen to patients much more when it comes to recovery That's right. and not be too, um, have, have too, too many norms around that? That's right. Um, Yes. How do we define recovery? And and absolutely, there's a place for understanding that individuals who are burdened with these conditions may define recovery very differently. You know, very differently from the uh, healthcare um, and syndrome, the symptoms of the syndrome. Right. For for most people who have eating disorders recovery is a bigger story than that and has to do with quality of life and relationships and meaning and purpose and so on. So when that's gone, when patients don't feel like they have a chance at recovery or have given up on recovery, what's your experience with that? How does that present clinically uh, for someone? And what's the, what is the practice in the Netherlands around understanding this aspect of reckoning with life and life and death. Yeah. One of the things at least that, that, that we experience um, perhaps because we're a tertiary center is an increasing number of individuals who say they want to die. And um, in my experience, I would say 99.9% of the individuals with an eating disorder and specifically people with with restrictive anorexia nervosa do not want to die. They want to live. Mm -hmm. Um, But there seems to be at least, but that could very well be my referral bias, um, a group of relatively young individuals who say they want to die. and these young individuals in general, I'm, I'm talking about 20 to 30 year olds. I mean, from my perspective, that's very young. Mm-hmm. And these individuals generally have had a very long history of eating disorders, 10 years, sometimes 15 years, multiple treatments, evidence-based treatments, 
um, uh, forced treatments, force-fed treatments, but that, that has not resulted in lasting recovery. And I find that very, very worrisome mm-hmm. uh, because um, we should avoid death if we can, but um, these individuals actually want to die. And in our services, we struggle with this on a daily basis because obviously we don't have the answer. Um, and and like everywhere else in the world, even with really good care and treatment, people die from eating disorders like they die from other serious mental and somatic illness. Um, right. But again, we, we, we try to avoid that, but it's, it's, a, it's a huge struggle in, in trying to achieve that. And, and how do you do that with someone with a BMI of between nine and 11? Your observation is that individuals are coming to they're coming to treatment, they're yes. coming to the center, and they are in despair. They mm-hmm. say they want to die. Do they say they want to die, or do they say they don't want to live, or does is, it, is it, that it, not a meaningful it, distinction? It, I, I think it is a meaningful distinction, and I, I actually think that most not all, but most people who say that they want to die actually don't want to live. They find living so extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about a patient that we have admitted now who's really had, like like many of these patients, I must say, so much extreme bad luck. She's survived um, multiple long-lasting um, sexual abuse periods in her life. Um, and and in many ways, it's it's really uh, you can understand why she finds life so difficult. Mm-hmm. She finds it; she cannot talk about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's completely engulfed by her eating disorder and can only think about not wanting to gain weight and losing weight and actually wanting to die. And she wants to die. She tries to die by starving herself. That that really is what she's trying to do. And that is almost impossible in this country. Um, The only way to do that is to completely isolate yourself somewhere in the woods and not contact anyone. Mm -hmm. That's not how it works. So Mm -hmm. these individuals end up in hospital time and time again. So Um, Eric, let me ask you, um, you're describing somebody who is really in a state of despair, who really has expressed that she doesn't want to live. She wants to die. What are, could you share with us the, the general big overview? I know this is a big topic, but sort of a big overview to contextualize this discussion in the Netherlands. What are the laws and practices around end of life for somebody with a mental health condition like this that indeed is a, is a is a big a big topic since 2002 the law on the termination of life on request and assisted suicide act became legal and um 
obviously, um, the the I'll, I'll just call it um, euthanasia. But euthanasia is um, most commonly requested for uh, elderly patients with severe somatic illness in the end stages of their life. Um, from all deaths in the Netherlands, only 4% are actually um, cases where euthanasia um, ended their life. So even- 4% of individuals with mental illness. No, with all illnesses. With all illnesses, okay. And then of the euthanasia cases, yes. what percent is mental illness? That's 1%. Okay. So, so it's 1% of 4% of deaths. So euthanasia in general is relatively rare, mm -hmm. uh, which I think may be a common misperception in the US, but it's if it's only 4%. And within um, the people that receive euthanasia, only 1% are people with uh, mental illness. And this practice has um, the number of individuals requesting euthanasia with a mental illness has increased slightly. In, in 2010, this was still very rare, around two cases per year, but it has increased to between 60 and 90 cases in the, the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a dramatic increase. Yes, I think that's a really dramatic increase. And there's, of course, obviously a lot of debate about um, how we should deal with this increase in requests. Mm -hmm. And um, one of one of the things that I just my my personal opinion, but I, there's an inflation in terms I think in the in the words people use, and um, I think that the the requesting euthanasia for for some is a way to express their extreme despair around their illness and their life, um, whilst in the old days. Um, they might have said, I, I just feel desperate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the, again, this is context because within, if euthanasia is legal and it is legal in this country, then you can also request it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, right. There's, there's, it's interesting that there's the, the demand and the. Right. So euthanasia is legal in the Netherlands. It's now legal for mental health conditions. There was a paper recently published by uh, colleagues. I think all of the colleagues are in the US, Jennifer Gaudiani, Alyssa Bogetz, and Joel Yeager, uh, entitled Terminal Anorexia, Three Cases and Proposed Clinical Characteristics that has caught a lot of attention and, and many different reactions. As you look at this uh, conversation that's been catalyzed by this paper, from the perspective of being in the Netherlands, what do you see that makes sense or from your experience of the Netherlands that you, what caution would you have? Um, and what what wisdom? You're you're ahead of the game in in some ways. First of all, I, I think it's really, really important to realize how different the US and the and the Dutch healthcare system are. That there's 
it is very hard to compare um, interventions, and certainly when it comes to this sensitive topic uh, of, of death, into healthcare systems that are so completely different, where access to care is so completely different, where reimbursement of care is so different. So it's, I, I cannot be judgmental in any way of the US system because it's not the system I work with. Um, I, I think that um, what Gaudiani and colleagues did is they, they was, was very brave in many ways in that they addressed a topic which every clinician dealing with serious eating disorders must encounter, but is rarely discussed or rarely uh, treated. So I remember a couple of years ago at one of the Academy for Eating Disorders conference, it was huge news that a, a clinician said that they did not send away patients that were so severely ill that they may perhaps die from the illness. They would actually care from them for them and offer them sort of a palliative care process. And, and I was completely shocked because we've been doing this forever. Mm-hmm. Um, how can this be new? Right. So a- addressing a topic of how do we deal with individuals that find life so difficult that they want to end their life and not by suicide, because we know that's suicide is a huge problem in eating disorders. Suicide mm-hmm is very, very lonely and and very traumatizing for everyone. And and it's 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 probably never a good ending. So what I'm hearing from you, Eric, in terms of the big idea that we're talking about here is this the seriousness of end of life for a a small group of individuals, but a group that otherwise winds up really isolated and alone in our in the world of eating disorders and you've mentioned a few things that i think are really important to how you think about it and the way you would frame this big idea around you started talking about being sure that individuals had access to care and had access to evidence-based care and that then part of that if an individual has had access to care and and high quality care and continues to be burdened in a way that feels unbearable we need to have these conversations around it that and that the conversation needs to be initiated the request needs to be initiated by the patient but there needs to be space for that kind of conversation am i capturing that right? Are there things that you would edit or highlight differently? You're capturing it brilliantly. Yes, I think that's that's very important. Um, not having this conver- conversations with patients and families is not taking them seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, discharging them from your services when these requests are made is um, could be seen as an aggressive move. You don't want to be uh, confronted with the fact that your patient may want to die or is dying. Um, so, so caring for individuals in these sometimes final stages, but certainly in a, a very with very serious uh, burdens, I think is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my patients is a woman. She's in her fifties, and she's had 
obviously multiple treatments, all sorts of treatments, but evidence-based treatments. And she now has a very low BMI and is slowly deteriorating. Her body is slowly giving up. And I see her every week. And I talk with her family, I talk with her daughters, and I cannot predict the future. I'm trying to help get her the best care that she needs at that moment. If she wants an admission, sort of a booster admission to, to get the, the structure of the, of the inpatient unit and perhaps gain a couple of kilos, that's fine. If she doesn't, that's fine too. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to force her i'm not going to pester her with treatment i i'm following her path mm -hmm. you know your comment there makes me takes us back around eric to this idea of needing to hear from patients about what quality of life is and the the work that you referenced and the work that we worked on together with um sarah wetzler and and um, who defined for uh, based on a review dimensions of recovery and quality of life that matter to patients that are that were things like um, supportive relationships, hope, identity, meaning and purpose, empowerment, and self-compassion. Those were the domains that emerged from the review that Sarah led that we worked on as a team. When those things don't exist, the quality of life is extremely low. You've got a patient now who may be saying, all of those psychological domains aren't working for me and my body is giving out and I've had this disorder for decades and I'm, um, I don't see recovery ahead. And you mentioned that you continue to see her, which you know, in the U.S., this whole movement around palliative care is really a, a, a waking up to how do we hear what patients want in terms of quality of life today. It, it, patients have been telling us this, right, if we would only listen. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a discussion around palliative care and listening to patients and what they want. Um, and then there's a reckoning. And you're saying that you have lived with this as a clinician, that there have been patients who've, who, you, who you've tried to meet in terms of quality of life and what they want from life. And nonetheless, life was too much of a burden for them and they chose to end their lives with through the the programs the the through practice euthanasia. In, no. through euthanasia no. from my perspective is extraordinarily humane in a in a from a certain perspective Glad it also that. raises people's concerns that yeah but you know, we don't have the best treatments that work for all patients so that if everyone got those treatments, they would work. And so we need to do better in terms of our treatments. We need to do better in terms of access to care. Your point about ensuring that people had access to care and had access to evidence-based care, but even our evidence-based care has huge deficiencies. So there's worry yeah. that the that embracing a model of palliative care and euthanasia will take healthcare providers off the hook. 
I, I, I think that's, that's that's black and white thinking. It's of course we need to do better. Our our best evidence based treatments are rather mediocre. In in many other uh, fields of medicine, um, similar things occur. Um, th there are some really good and some good treatments for certain forms of cancer. Um, but even with the best treatments, some people um, end up in a state where nothing can be done. They've, they've had all the treatments and in this country, at an end of life stage, people can request euthanasia and they receive euthanasia from their doctor. Um, it's the same for mental illness. We, we Even with the best treatments, prolonged treatments, um, given all the deficiencies and the, the pluses and the minuses, we cannot, not everyone gets well. Some people die. And a, a humane death, a good death, at least from my perspective, may be better than suicide. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very difficult, emotional, sensitive topic. So as you look forward, what do you think we need to do as a field to advance this conversation? I, I, I think we should very much focus on access to care, improving the quality of care and of treatment, getting more people into recovery, but listening to our patients at the same time, listening really, really well. I've never learned more than listening to my patients, um, listening to their definitions of recovery, listening to their suffering, listening to unbearable suffering and not walking away from these conversations, I think is very important for all of us in, in every healthcare system, because you cannot step outside of your healthcare system. Our US colleagues have to deal with their system, um, which is, is a problematic system from my privileged Dutch perspective, but Patients have to deal with it. Clinicians have to deal with it. Um, you made a comment earlier that having the conversation yeah. is healing in in a, as a first step. That yes. when people are thinking about these issues, if they if our patients are thinking about these issues, but understand in because of the various systems in place that this is not a topic they can discuss with us, then where do they go with it? And that's a real failure, right? Yeah. Of capacity to embrace all that's burdening them. And yeah. uh, it occurs to me, Eric, that it it's very similar just generally to talking about end of life and that people that's a difficult conversation for many people. And as people get older, they want to talk about what they want and how they yeah. hope their lives will conclude uh, here on earth. And if we can embrace those conversations, there's so much healing in and of themselves. So I agree with you that the US has a lot to learn from different systems and the Netherlands is one. There are other countries that have policies and practices in place where if we could collect the data and bring it forward and have 
real conversations that include our patients, I mm-hmm. think we learn a lot. Yeah. Although <laughs> I would say that that um, getting the U.S. to adopt universal health care would really be a very important first step. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that would, uh, that... from a population perspective, that would make such a big difference. No question. No question. The yeah. and that takes us really to a, a a timely conclusion of the our conversation, which is as you say, health. Each health system has its strengths and weaknesses, and there are significant aspects to the U.S. health system that create gaps uh, in care and takes us back around to your point about having the conversation about euthanasia only in the context of a system that is also pushing hard to ensure access to evidence-based care. We really can't have one without the other. No, we can't. That would be a huge injustice and and a failure of us clinicians. Yeah. Well, Eric, I want to thank you for joining me today for Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. This is a big idea, and it's one that has many facets. And I really appreciate hearing from you, learning from you about your own clinical experience and the laws and policies in the Netherlands, and hope that we can responsibly, ethically, and constructively continue this conversation as a field. Thank you. Thank you. And and, um, I hope this leads to many new conversations 